Today's reading is Revelation 7, 9 through 17. It can be found on page 1142 of the Bibles next to your seats, as well as on the screen. This is God's word. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they, and where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. Never again will they be hungry. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center before the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The word of the Lord. I invite you to um, check my microphone. I invite you to pray with me as we look at this. Our God of grace, we um, come into this space from from different kinds of experiences, places, uh, different levels of of belief even. So as we come maybe embracing fully and excited to hear things about you and your grace and your love, or if we're here somewhat reluctantly, somewhat with a sense of um, uh, this doesn't feel safe to open ourselves up this much to these kinds of deep things. Wherever we come from, whether it's um, grief or joy, thankfulness or, or bitterness from what has come to us in life, wherever we are this morning, we pray that you would speak to us from your grace, the kind of grace that does speak to us in all the places we find ourselves. Um, because the truth is, we are all in need of your grace every second. We're more of a mess than we care to admit, and... In Christ, you tell us we are more loved and accepted than we ever dared hope. And, and those two things are true of everyone in this room right now at the same time. Pray that you teach us to live from the joy of that space of grace and help this to be a part of it as we listen to your word now. In Jesus' name, amen. In Revelation chapter 7, we have these washed worshipers their robes are washed, white, and they are um, in worship 
before God's throne and before the Lamb, who is a prominent figure in the entire uh, 22 chapters of the book of Revelation. So there's always the throne, there's always this lamb before the throne, there's, there's elders then that make another circle around the lamb, and then there's um, other descriptions of worshipers. Sometimes it's countless angels, and in this case it's countless washed worshipers in white robes from many tribes and nations and people and every language. So it's a multi-ethnic group of washed worshipers in a heavenly-type image um, they're beyond counting, and then they have the great irony that their clothes are pure white, but that it's become that way because of something that ordinarily you and I would, if, if it got on our clothes, we would, we would curse and put our hand in the air. <laughs> ah, some blood got on this garment, you know. How am I ever going to get that out? And the irony that their clothes have become white, pure white, because of the Lamb's blood. That's the image that, we're, that sort of sits with us as we look at Revelation chapter 7. And so, ha- so we're, we're thinking about cleaning and washing and what the Bible tells us about that. And you guys answered this question, how, how often do you take a bath? Somebody said, never. Where is there time for that? <laughs> All right. I, I can relate to that. I'm a, I'm a doer and I'm an efficiency person. Someone says, how, how often do you take a bath? Not as often as I'd like to. I love baths, but have not indulged, well, maybe a few times since the drought. I do shower, though, <laughs> with a shower head that shuts off between rinses. All right, so, you know, you sense a little drought guilt there. <laughs> Or drought diligence that were conservation diligence that is communicated, however you want to view that. How often do you take a bath? Once a year, someone else says. <laughs> someone else says one to two times a year. So I wonder if the person who said once a year, if it's a real fixed thing or if that's an estimate. Um, if someone else says, how often do you take a bath? Probably, uh, this is, last time was probably two years ago. Um, and then in, in parentheses, Showers are much more frequent. So I, I imagine, I could see myself doing that, filling out the card uh, two years ago and then suddenly thinking, are they going to think, are they going to know who, who wrote that and then are they going to think that I, that's the cleaning that I've done in my life recently is one bath over two years. Um, how much, how often do you spend scrubbing your life clean, getting clean? Do you... Do you ever brush your teeth before some kind of interaction that you're going to have with someone? You're running out the door. You're going to go out, you know, meet someone. Um, you know, you go brush your teeth real quick. You remember at the door, you go back in, brush your teeth. And then you see in the medicine cabinet your deodorant there, and you're like, just do another one for good measure. <laughs> just a little cover-up. What's been going on over there? And um, maybe you, maybe in a more general way, you tidy up your life for people. You cl- get cleaned up. You scrub. Do you scrub your Facebook profile as you go into a season of life of interviewing for jobs? <laughs> kind of go through and carefully remove, 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 delete, delete. Do you um, do a bit of impression management as you walk around in the world? 
kind of clean yourself up. Going out for a date, you know, you're going to a class reunion, clean things up, kind of present a picture of tidiness and of togetherness in a way that you, that you want. There will be a couple pictures that are just kind of up here. The next one can come up. There is this, so I'm learning about this, and I don't know much about it. There's this festival in India called Kumbh Mela. It happens in four different cities every 12 years. So it happens that there was one in 2012, and there's one happening right now in another city. Um, And what happened in 2012 was all these people came to this river for a sacred, to to get into the river in India for sort of getting washed, and it's a spiritual cleansing. And um, I don't know what you think about that. It happens every four years, I guess, um, 12 years in four different cities. And um, all these people come convinced that there is some power to the water and to coming to get spiritually cleansed. And I suspect most of you probably think, well, okay, yeah, that's a... You know, that's, you know, you don't want to say it this way, but in your mind you're kind of thinking there's sort of some primitive cultural beliefs there. I don't know that I buy that. I mean, hygiene, yes, but, you know, spiritually cleaning in a river, eh, aren't we past that? I would challenge that just by the sheer numbers. In 2012, there were 120 million people who came to do it. That's 37% of the United States population can you imagine over one-third of everyone in the entire United States just went on a, at the same time to go part of a festival for spiritual cleaning? That's like, the, that's like the sixth largest cities in the world. All of them completely vanished to go to this festival. I mean, that's how many people. Are you going to suggest 120 million people are all just thinking primitive thoughts that don't connect to, you know, they just need better education about, you know, how things really work and about, they need better psychology maybe about why they feel guilty? I don't know, 120 million people. I don't know that I'd argue with 120 million people. It at least would give me, at least gives me pause, right? If 120 million people do something. Um, I think that we are often doing things, and we don't connect them to spiritual reality. We're often doing things, and they have a connection. If you peel back the layers, I even was thinking about how annoyed I am that our new bathroom, we had a little addition, a growing family, new bathroom, you know, get to design it yourself, get it, you know, the white tile, the white grout, the tub, and I'm so annoyed at that mildew that's starting on the um, silicone at the bead at the bottom because I, I put that white silicone there and it looks so good. And it was, you know what, so then you start... You know, it's, it's mildew. That's dirty. That's bad. Clean it. I, I ordered on Amazon Prime, I think it comes Tuesday, some supplies on how to get that off there. And, and then if I think and peel back the layers underneath somewhere, and I could go through all the layers, but I'll save you the time, somewhere deep down there is some control issues. <laughs> somewhere deep down there is some sense of like, if I keep some things certain ways in my life, I feel a certain way, or I feel a sort of settledness that I'm okay, maybe that um, I'm that I I don't know that I matter, or that I'm not, you know. So, if you peel back the layers, I think all of us have things like that. We're scrubbing up our life in one way or another. In a way, you know how they say it on, on, on movies and TV, police dramas. 
You know, I, I checked his record. He's clean, you know. I went, you know, I, I went into the database. Hey, he comes up clean. She comes up clean. You know, she doesn't have a record. In many ways, are we uh, before... Are, are we in our lives hoping for that response? Are we trying to tidy things up, constantly managing, hoping that that will be the verdict? Well, I looked, you know, I, I poured over the data and they're clean. And of course, you say, well, I, you don't, maybe a lot of us don't look at God that way. You know, we're modern people again. You know, aren't we past that? Maybe you're not sitting around going, oh, God, um, God, I hope that you see my record and say I'm clean. That's not as common today. But you've made something in your life into your God. And for that God, you are scrubbing things up. You're cleaning up. Whatever your God is, you're making pilgrimages in your daily life to bathe and to wash and to get clean. I won't make you raise your hand and admit the different ways. But in the worship guide, there's a quote of someone who kind of sees us as a culture doing this. She's an editor of young teenage magazines targeted for young teenagers. Her name's Christina Kelly. Um, she wrote, Why do we crave celebrities? Here's my theory. To be human is to feel inconsequential. So we worship celebrities and we look uh, and we seek to look like them. All the great things they have done, we identify with in order to escape our own inconsequential lives. But it's so dumb. With this stream of perfectly airbrushed, implanted liposuction stars, you would have to be an absolute powerhouse of self-esteem already not to feel totally inferior before them. So we worship them because we feel inconsequential, but doing it makes us feel even worse. We make them stars, but then their fame makes us feel insignificant. She says, I am a part of this whole process as an editor. No wonder I feel soiled at the end of the day. I think the pilgrims in India are much more upfront and honest about what they're doing, right? Every, every, every 12 years, I'm just going to go and deal with my spiritual uncleanness. You know, that we're, we're, we're striving to, to not find ourselves to be stained, not find ourselves to be soiled, to make sure we're not in any way diminished or unworthy, or inconsequential, as, as uh, Christina Kelly says, or in some ways guilty, or contaminated, as the famous line in Macbeth, Lady Macbeth is waking, uh, getting awake at night, or awakened by her guilty conscience, she's doing it in her sleep, and she's trying to scrub out the, the blood, or the spots on her that aren't really there, out, damned spot, out, we're all doing that. In one way or another, you might not believe me yet, but we are. And so we're going to look at how uh, there's three parts of this. There's our stubborn stain, there's our final washing, and there's our incomparable bath. There's another slide that just has the words from this text added up there that can just stay as we reflect on this. So first, our stubborn stain that's universal. The verse 14 says they are those they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. There's a stubborn stain that that refers to. You wouldn't know it by how we talk to each other. We don't act like this is the way things are. We say to each other about our mistakes 
Sometimes the deepest we go is to say, my bad, and what might you say in reply? It's okay, I heard no worries. That was what was in my head. I like that. It's okay, it's okay, it's okay, my bad. You see, you are all really good at it. You had different ways of immediately, hey, my bad, it's okay. Oh, now you didn't do it. I thought you did. You know, we're good at that kind of exchange, right? We're good at that. We're, but do you notice how shallow it is? It doesn't really go very deep into, because um, we don't want to. We don't want to go very deep into that. And in popular thought, there's a lot of this. There's a, um, there's a term for guilt and other emotions like that, like shame and, and embarrassment. Um, some psychologists refer to them as negative legacy emotions. And, of course, what are you supposed to do with negative legacy emotions? You've got to try to grow out of them, get rid of them. Um, this psychologist, Peter Bregan, says, you and I as adults can decide to live good and ethical lives without the painful and distracting intrusions upon us. Especially if armed with the concept of legacy, negative legacy emotions, we can learn to replace guilt, shame, and anxiety with rational principles, improved relationships, and higher ideals in love. Sounds pretty good, if you think that can be done. Um, that's pretty optimistic, too. I think that's reflective of our distance, um, chronologically, from World War II. Um, Many of the thinkers, after, shortly after World War II, were doing a lot of thought about this exact thing, about this kind of how optimistic can we be about humanity and about humanity's ability to just kind of learn to be better and to apply more rational things. And so here's a couple of quotes coming out of uh, C.M. Jode, who um, towards the end of his life turned from a, a, he's a social philosopher, he turned from atheist to uh, believer towards the end of his life, and this is in his book called The Recovery of Belief in 1952, he says, it was because we rejected the doctrine of original sin that we on the left were always being so disappointed, disappointed by the refusal of people to be reasonable, by the behavior of nations and politicians, above all, by the recurrent fact of war. And then uh, Lord David Cecil after the Holocaust, said, the jargon of the philosophy of progress taught us to think that the sa savage and primitive state of man is behind us. But barbarism is not behind us. He says, it is within us. There's a sort of optimism that was not possible to hang on to uh, coming out of you know, the 1940s in our world. And I think we've gotten some distance from it, and we imagine we call it le negative legacy emotions, and we can all just get better. But there is a stubborn stain. And the Bible predicted, um, in a sense, um, the Bible tells us this about ourselves um, and encourages us to do very non-evasive grappling with the reality of this. And in many ways, the Bible predicted our resistance to do so as God, as he enters into covenant with his people, begins to implement a sort of a theology in practice with the people of Israel that 
that uh, firmly planted in their experience of everyday life the fact that there is a stubborn stain of uncleanness that is coming from within us and is always around us. And so there's all these cleanliness laws. Um, and so this is what Tim Keller says about this. And, and they come all the way through to the time of Jesus. And then Jesus had some things to say about how people were applying them wrongly. But Tim Keller says, according to the cleanliness laws, if you touched a dead animal or human being, if you had an infectious skin disease like boils or rashes or sores, if you came into contact with mildew, uh, if you had any kind of bodily discharge, or if you ate meat from an animal designated as unclean, you were considered ritually impure, defiled, stained, unclean. That meant you couldn't enter the temple and therefore you couldn't worship God with the community. So, he says, the washings and efforts to stay clean and free from dirt and disease that were used by the religious people in Jesus' day were a kind of visual aid that enabled them to recognize that they were spiritually and morally unclean and couldn't enter the presence of God unless there was some kind of spiritual purification we all need to be washed. So I would just say we do ourselves no favor by um, the reality of our uncleanness spiritually. And quite frankly, it's like if you're sick, you have high motivation to find the right diagnosis. If you are enslaved, you do well to know who's enslaving you so that you might be liberated and free. And that's true about our um, status as those who are, all of us, contaminated, unclean. There's a stubborn stain. There's also a final washing that we're all entered into. Now, I've taken a lot of time with everything so far, but this will go a lot quicker. So our final washing, and it, and it comes in Jesus, who in the book of Revelation is the lamb who was slain. There's several times where there's a, a little confusing interaction in the book of Revelation the, where John is talking to someone and one of them is confused. And some people have said, you can, you can, it happens seven times. And some uh, scholars have said, that's a way to look at the frame of the book is through these different misunderstandings. The, five, the seven misunderstandings are a way of framing what's happening in this book. But we have one of them here. When one of the elders asked me, then one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, sir, you know. And he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. There is a revolutionary washing that happens through Jesus. Um... Back to Macbeth, the quotes in your worship guide, because uh, Mr. Macbeth <laughs> says to the doctor, you know, he's concerned about Lady Macbeth, he says, cure her of that. Canst thou not minister to a mind diseased? Pluck from the memory a rooted sorrow? Raise out the hidden troubles of the brain? And with some sweet oblivious antidote? Cleanse the stuffed bosom of that perilous stuff which weighs upon the heart. Isn't there, isn't there some sweet, oblivious antidote? And the Bible says yes. That's exactly, exactly 
And that ethos of that quote that, that Shakespeare is pinpointing there, that's exactly what Jesus gets at. That's exactly what Revelation chapter 7 is showing us is possible. And that's exactly what Jesus is all about. We say in our baptism liturgy these words. Our gracious God has always desired to hold his people in a covenant embrace. He declares over and over, I will be their God and they shall be my people. Pursuing this deep desire, God called Abraham and Sarah to trust in him and gave a covenant, to sh- sign, covenant sign to show that they belong to him. In baptism, God claims us in Christ and marks us as his own people and seals our membership in God's covenant community, the church. Baptism is the covenant sign that God frees us from the power of sin and death, uniting us with Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection. Listen to all the firm, strong things that are said are true in baptism. Uniting us with Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection, by water and the Holy Spirit, we are washed clean from sin. God's grace and baptism calls us to give ourselves to him in trust, love, and obedience. That's part of the explanation of baptism. You see all the incredible things that Christianity says are true of you through baptism? And notice, the, notice what we believe. We believe that these things, that you're, you're definitively washed, that you're completely okay in God's presence, that, you, that God has you in his arms for good. These things are true and they are said. You, notice these two things about baptism. These kinds of things are said at the beginning of your journey into the Christian family and the Christian church. They're said at the beginning. It's not something that's held out if you measure up by a certain point. The other thing to note is that they're only the baptism is only done once. And, you know, at least that's kind of the what I think is the the, the weightiest, meatiest way of looking at baptism. I know some of you have said, well, I, I had a few. You know, because you end up in your journeys go different ways and you end up in a church and they say, I like this place, and, or you say, I like this place. They say, well, you have to get re-baptized and so maybe you've done that. We have that going on. But I think the weightiest way to look at it and the way the church has most commonly throughout history looked at it from the beginning is baptism just happens once and that can't be undone in a way that you now need to do it again because it declares this definitive thing that was done 2,000 years ago in Jesus. And that doesn't need to be redone. So once that's spoken over your life, this is true of you. Christians are the only people, now with what I just said, Christians are like the only people, even amidst religious people, who think that on the front end, they come into a washing and they're clean in any of their worshiping, whether you're, you know, worshiping with quotes, you know, whatever gods you've set up in your life, or whether you're worshiping some kind of religious god, Christians are the only one who's worshiping follows after the washing. In, in just about every other thing, you can think of it as you are worshiping and you're working at worship and you're working at adoration of this god you've set up in order to hope that you can be assured of being clean someday. Christianity is totally different than everything else, and it's your final washing that's put before you in this picture in Revelation chapter 7. 
countless people from all different places on the globe, all with the exact same final washing has happened to them. So they're just singing, and they're just worshiping and kneeling and bowing. There's nothing else to do. How incredible to, be, to have that transition take place in your life where you, you obey because you're accepted. Everybody else says um, you're accepted because you obey. Every other religion says you're accepted because you obey enough. This final washing reverses that for good. And then lastly... There's an incomparable bath. There's an incomparable bath that we have of unparalleled quality. Before you find Christ's definitive washing to take place and take root in your life, the quality of your life is kind of like an enslavement to whatever you have set up as your ways of washing, your ways of getting clean, your ways of getting out the spot. It's never-ending. You're never really sure, are you? There's not that kind of assurance. And it's, you're never at full rest and fully confident that um, you can stop. Um, when the things Christians become true, or when, when the things Christians believe come true for you, there's this amazing possibility of living in uh, just a sweet relief a sweet relief of having been washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. Um, And this is a unique thing that should be true about Christians. Um, It's not always. It's not always true of me, but it should be, is that even amidst your obvious imperfections that others can see, even amidst your obvious imperfections and stains and contaminations that others can point out to you, and they probably have or they might in the future, your obvious imperfections, your foibles, your stains, your guilt, you can live with your head high because the Christian tries to move into that space more and more, and this would be called Christian maturity, where your instantaneous reaction to seeing those things is to remember, oh my gosh, nothing hinges on my perfection. To see your own mistakes, although it brings a sort of holy sadness to you, at the same time brings a sort of relief and joy. Oftentimes, to be fully Christian, to be really living in in it, combines those two things. A, A holy sorrow and a joyful reaction that kind of flow in that order. Because, oh yeah, I don't really like it that this is going on or this happened or that this was identified. And yet, I'm free, from the, I'm free from the entrapment of having to be clean in that area of my life. Praise God. And in Romans chapter 7, verse 16 and 17, you just see this laid out. Actually, it starts in verse 15. You get the sense of the space a Christian lives within, and you can, we'll finish with this. They are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. So there's a confidence, number one. Before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. Second of all, a kind of protection. Never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center before the throne will be their shepherd and he will lead them to springs of living water. So third, there's a kind of a nourishment. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. 
That's the space you live in. That's not just someday. That's the space you lean into and live into if the gospel has landed in your life and is beginning to find its way into the various realms of contamination and stains in all of our lives. Do you, how's your confidence? How's your, how's your sense of protection? Are you living with a lot of fears? How's your sense of being good with God and he's your shepherd, he's got your journey under control? How's your sense of nourishment? Are you drinking from the contaminated water of spigots coming off the back of buildings in an alley? <laughs> or is there a fountain of living water that you're drawing from and you're nourished? Let us pray. Dear God, um, it, is, it is like a polluted, contaminated way to live. When we seek to wash ourselves, when we seek to live under the burden that somehow we are going to make ourselves okay, somehow we are going to validate our entire existence through keeping ourselves together, keeping ourselves cleaned up, tidied up. So whoever, God, whoever is our God of, that we're worshiping and cleaning ourselves up for, may we... Um, May we hear the joyous offer and call to be washed. And may we join the throng of worshipers who are just living and worshiping from the place of sweet relief, the relief of your gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.